Good morning, everyone. Today's message is taken from Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. You can find that passage on page 792 in your pew Bible. Um, I will be reading that verse with the New King's, King James, so it won't be exactly, but I do have uh, that passage on a printout in the bulletin. But while you look up the passage, let me direct you to those printouts. One is has the Bible verses and also the passage that we'll be reading in a few minutes. And the other one has a printout of two maps. They're side by side. The one on the left uh, shows you what uh, or where Zebulun and Naphtali were located when the Jews first were given the land of Israel and God was dividing each land to the, um, the head of each tribe. On the other side, you'll see a map that's very similar, but you won't see the provinces of Zebulun and Naphtali, but you will see uh, where the Sea of Galilee is, where Galilee is, where Capernaum is, and where Nazareth is. And um, this will be a visual support, which a lot of us like, and hopefully it will give you some perspective as we get into the message. But as we read the passage, I'd like you to take a few mental notes. The first note is the main subject of the passage is the coming of the Jewish Messiah. But I'd also like you to look at how Isaiah set up this passage. He has it separated into three separate thoughts. The first thought will point to the Messiah's first coming. The second thought will point to the Messiah's second coming. And the third thought will point to the three offices the Messiah will hold during those advents. Verses 1 and 2 are the first thought. Verses 3, 4, and 5 is the second thought. And verses 6 and 7 are the third thought. So let's read that passage. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future... He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in deep darkness, a light has dawned. Verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burns them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, and every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and fuel for the fire. In verse 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So let's get into the message. I've been given the privilege to share a message this morning about the most important birth announcement ever given. This announcement is in a class of its own. The particular announcement we will be looking at is, was given almost 700 years before the child's birth. But that was only one of many announcements the Lord had sent. This announcement wasn't the first and it wasn't the last, but it is one that is very familiar to us all. The birth of this child was so important, it was literally being planned before the foundations of the earth were set. And for at least 4,000 years before the child was born, starting in the Garden of Eden, this announcement was being proclaimed. Yet, when the child arrived, he found himself in a lowly stable. And his father had entrusted his care to a humble God-fearing couple from Nazareth. The same Nazareth, which was often said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a small village in Galilee. It was located in the northern land of Naphtali. The people of the, the two northern provinces, Zebulun and Naphtali, had long been disdained by the religious elite because they had intermingled in marriage with the Gentiles and had defiled the Jewish bloodline. In the eyes of any good Jew, those who dwelt in those northern territories were half-breeds and would forever be considered defiled. Yet, it was in Galilee of the Gentiles, among those half-breeds, where his heavenly father predetermined he would grow up. The God of all creation, the only source of true wisdom, had his son, who was pure and undefiled by sin, grow up among the outcasts of Israel. But there's one more thing, this birth announcement, which makes it not only important, but also extremely odd. None of us would ever send a birth announcement out like this. How strange to attach his son's birth announcement with the announcement of his son's death. Yet, this is what we see in Isaiah 9, verse 6. Unto us a child was born. Unto us a son was given. Jesus is the child that was born, and he is the son that God gave for our sin. And this will be the text for today's message. Isaiah has a very unique prophetic style, writing style. And being aware of it will help us understand this passage in Isaiah 
You could say understanding this prophetic writing technique is the key to unlocking other prophecies found in Isaiah. And if the Jews had understood his writing technique, they wouldn't have expected a king to come, or they wouldn't have expected their Messiah to come as a conquering king. Let me read a quote to you from John MacArthur that will explain Isaiah's writing style. Isaiah has a writing style that uses a writing device called prophetic foreshortening. And this is what this means. Isaiah predicted future events without revealing the exact sequences of those events and the time intervals separating them. For example, nothing in Isaiah's prophecy reveals the extended period of time separating the first and the second coming of Jesus. So when we read Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, we see a perfect example of this writing device used by Isaiah. And having this insight will help us to see how this passage foretells the two advents of the Messiah. The fact that there are two advents is veiled, and neither is there any, any, anything in this message which gives us a hint of the time interval between them. But that being said, from this point on, the message will go from We'll go, through, we'll go through the seven verses in Isaiah, keeping in mind his writing style. We'll d- determine which verses foretell his first coming and which verses foretell his second coming. And Isaiah does, as I mentioned before, separate his passage into three different thoughts. And then after determining which verses foretell the first coming and which one foretell the second coming, I'll finish the message with Isaiah 9, verse 6, explaining why this birth announcement and death announcement is so important to God's redemptive work. So let's start with verse 1 and 2, which contains Isaiah's first thought. There are two things that we want to see in this verse. First, we want to see what advent that this verse is referring to. And second, we want to know what kind of Messiah should we be looking for. So let's read that verse again. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The humbling that Isaiah is talking about in the first verse is the beginning of the judgment upon Israel back in 720 B.C. This judgment came because they had turned their back on God and trusted in idols. This is a pattern that we see continuously 
happening with the Jewish people. But unless we think we are any different than the Jews, I'm sure we can all see this pattern happening in us also. God delivers us. He saves us. He restores a right relationship with him. We get bored. We turn our back to him. We look to other things. We start trusting in other things. We start trusting in ourselves. And before we know it, we find ourselves in sin. And then again, the judgment comes, and the pattern repeats again and again and again. The judgment carried out was carried out by the king of Assyria. After he had taken some captives free, I mean some captives back to Assyria, he planted Assyrian citizens into those two northern provinces. That was the humbling that Isaiah spoke of. And it was during that time that the Jews intermingled with the Assyrians. And from that time on, they were considered half-breeds by the rest of Israel. Eventually, all of Israel fell to captivity, Israel and Judah. They were brought into captivity either by the Assyrians or the Babylonians. But the first to be humbled were the people in Zebulun and the people in Naphtali. It's amazing when you, when you look at God and his grace. Although he humbled them first, he was quick to let them see the glory of his son first. It's in verse 2 that we see the foretelling of the first coming of the Messiah. And let's look at that again. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The first to see this light were the Jews living in those two northern territories of Zebulun and Naphtali. And the light Isaiah is speaking of is revealed in Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. Uh, you don't have to go to that. I'll read this. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed from Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light is dawned. Jesus is the great light that honored those people. The New Testament testifies that Jesus was the first coming of the Messiah, and Matthew specifically links Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, to Jesus. So by association, verses 1 and 2 foretell the forecoming of the first Messiah. And Jesus was 
the first Messiah. These two verses also tell us that we should expect the Messiah to look what he should look like during his first advent. Matthew says nothing about Jesus coming as a conquering king. But he does say he would be the great light. All of the New Testament is a witness that Jesus is the great light. And even Jesus himself testifies that he is the great light. In John 8.12, he says this, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, foretell of the first coming of the Messiah. It also tells how to recognize him when he does come. And Jesus fits that description perfectly. So that brings us to verses 3, 4, and 5. And this is Isaiah's second point in the passage and it foretells of the Messiah coming as a conquering king. So let's read uh, 3, 4, and 5 one more time. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, and the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burden and will be fuel for the fire. The overall message of these three verses speak of the Messiah coming as a conquering king to his people. He restores the boundaries of Israel as they were when King David was sitting on the throne. He defeats all their enemies in one hour, just like Gideon defeated the Midianites in one night. And he shatters the oppressive yoke that was upon them and the bar that was across their shoulders. This is a picture of a conquering king. This is not a picture of Jesus during his first advent. The New Testament and the historical records we find in the secular world tell us there has never been a time in the history of Israel, beginning when Isaiah first gave this prophecy, up to this day, where Israel has seen all their enemies defeated and lived in peace with all their neighbors. And that includes the 33-year period when Jesus was walking the earth. Biblical and secular history revealed that these verses were not filled during Messiah's first coming, and they still have not yet been fulfilled. But they will be fulfilled when Jesus returns his second time. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John gives us a perfect picture of what the Messiah will look like when he returns, and he will return as a conquering king. 
The Jews looked for a conquering Messiah 2,000 years ago, but if they had understood Isaiah's prophetic style of writing, they wouldn't have looked for a conquering king, but a suffering servant. If they had only known Jesus was the one they were looking for. This brings us to verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. I'm going to skip over verse 6a, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and come back to that in a few minutes. But the rest of verses 6 and 7 speak of a government resting on Messiah's shoulders. They foretell him of being exalted as a wonderful counselor, as a mighty God, the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. But we are confined by the context of this passage by who Isaiah is speaking to, and we know he's speaking to the Jews. Who he's speaking about, we know he's speaking about Messiah. And he's also speaking about a particular place where they shall call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. So we have to look at the evidence available to us and see if there was a time when the Jews ever honored Jesus in the manner spoken of. And again, we have to go back to the New Testament. We have to go back to the secular records. And we see there is no evidence that the Jews ever embraced Jesus with such accolades. In fact, all evidence points so that he hated, they hated him and they despised him. They harassed him from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry. They mocked and excommunicated anyone who honored him. And they plotted his death and they worked his plan to his crucifixion. And never in the last 2,000 years have they ever received him as their Messiah. And even to this day, the majority of Jews still reject him as Savior. So we have to conclude that the acceptance of Jesus by the Jews as their Savior did not happen when Jesus first came. And the Jews still have not accepted him. But that can only happen when he returns his second time. The Jews, as a nation, will see Jesus as their Savior, and when he returns, they will, they will receive him with accolades. They will receive him as the, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Messiah who has come to save them from their enemies. And it will be 
an awesome sight to see. Again, if the Jews understood Isaiah's prophetic writing style, they would have seen he was foretelling that the Messiah would come twice. They would have seen he had to first come as a suffering Messiah. And during his second visitation, he would return in all his glory and all his power, delivering them from all their enemies and restoring them to the intimacy that was lost in the garden. Except for verse 6a, 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7 predict the second coming of Messiah. And that brings us back to the text for today's message. Isaiah 9, 6a. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. All of history had been moving toward the fulfillment of this announcement. The birth and death of Jesus, from the moment Adam and Eve were first beguiled by Satan's lies, believed them, and consummated them by disobeying that one commandment, all of creation was swallowed up by the power of sin. And Jesus first came to break the power of sin over the lives of his people. When Adam and Eve believed and trusted Satan's lie, the next inevitable step to occur was for them to disbelieve God and then to disobey his one command. They were safe and they were secure as long as their faith in Jesus and confidence in his word were intact. But when doubt took hold of their hearts, the course of their lives was forever changed and they were now headed for destruction. They trusted in their own reasoning above God's word. They reasoned within themselves and concluded that the lies Satan had fed them were more reasonable than the word of God. Eventually, those lies became the leaven that caused them to disobey, and their disobedience brought death. Not only to them, but to anyone who was born after them. Paul says it like this in Galatians 5.9. The little yeast will leaven the whole lump. Satan's little lie seems so reasonable. How bad could it be to eat just one piece of fruit? Unfaithfulness will always lead to disobedience, and disobedience will always lead to death. There has always been just one way to be in a right relationship with God, and it's always been by faith alone in Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. And outside of faith in God and his incorruptible word, outside of that is sin. 
All of creation was thrown into chaos because of that one act of unfaithfulness. It seemed so insignificant at the time. But every single person who had ever been born had been cursed with death because of that one act of unfaithfulness. We've all been filled and infested with thoughts of envy, jealousy, hatred, bitterness, wrath, and murder because of that one single act of unfaithfulness. Wars and murders are rampant in the world, in every corner of the earth, because faith in Jesus has been cast aside. But it wasn't the fruit that caused the death. It was the lack of faith in God and his incorruptible word that led to disobedience and left us all unable to escape in our own power this hopeless corruption. Only Jesus breaks the power of sin over our lives. This is what God says about everyone who was born since Adam and Eve. We've all sinned and gone our own way. Jeremiah says it this way, the heart of everyone is desperately wicked. Paul says it like this, I do what I hate and I don't do what I desire. We all know that Paul wrote a great portion of the New Testament, especially the epistles. And there's not one who would say that he was not a mighty man of God. But yet he says, I do what I hate. And I don't do what I love. I could quote many other verses that speak to our hopeless condition, but we all get the message. Paul gives the answer like this. Who can set us free? Who can set me free? from my hopeless condition. Thank God, Jesus, the child was born for us. And for our sake, he kept all the commandments. And then as God's son, the high priest of God, and also the lamb that was provided, he gives himself as a ransom, as a sacrifice to redeem us. As long as we have breath in our lungs, we can turn from our tainted goodness and turn to the true goodness of Jesus and have faith in his sacrifice as the only payment needed to inherit the kingdom of God. Trusting in Jesus and what he did for us on that cross is the only payment God will accept for our sin. I know that most of you here are trusting Jesus for your redemption. But for any of you who might have a shadow of doubt about life or death, what happens after 
this life, what happens when I die? We all know we're going to die. Everybody before us has died, and we're no exception. Don't shake off those thoughts. It's just emotionalism. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward to the altar. But I will ask you this. As you sit there in your seats, be honest with God. Be honest with yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, to confirm in your heart today that you're a citizen of heaven. He will let you know. And if you do get that far, where you do ask yourself that question, and you realize that you aren't saved, the remedy is easy. It's realizing you can't do anything about it. But there is somebody who can. He's given his life to pay for our sins. And all he asks from us is to cry out to him to give us a clean heart and a a new right spirit. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come before you and I thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. I thank you for your word. I thank you for blessing me as I presented this word to your people. And if there's a one heart out there, Lord, who does not know, who's not convinced they are a citizen of your kingdom, I pray that you will minister to them with your word and your spirit and by your grace before they before they close this day and rest for the day, that they would cry out to your name and ask for a clean heart and a, and a right spirit, that they may be citizens of your kingdom. In your name I pray, amen.